This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome back to the latest episode of Money and Markets. Joining me this week on the podcast is Shares Deputy Editor Tom Sieber, and he will be bringing us all the markets news from Netflix to Primark, as well as an update on the US. Yep. Hi, all. And on the podcast this week, I'll also be responding to a listener question about indices for those passive investors among you. And Dan Coatsworth brings us an interview with fund manager Ron Temple talking about UK interest rates and corporate earnings. And I'll be delving into the latest government debt figures, looking at whether they give us a signal as to whether we're headed for a recession or not. And I'll be helping to explain a new scheme where you can save money by using less energy. But first, as always, let's take a look at markets. Tom, should we start stateside maybe with an update there? Yeah, I think that's logical. We're well into the US fourth quarter earnings season now, and the early signs haven't been great, or at least the guidance has been pretty gloomy, even when the backward-looking earnings have held up reasonably well. So notably Microsoft, which was one of several tech firms recently to announce significant job cuts, was downbeat on the immediate prospects for its cloud computing business. And that's something that has wider significance because it's been a big driver not only for Microsoft, but also for businesses like Amazon and Alphabet. Um, Consumer health giant Johnson & Johnson's fourth quarter performance was ahead of forecast, but it warned of a continuing impact from inflation and COVID disruption in China. One of the brighter spots in the US so far has been Netflix, actually, which beat expectations for subscriber numbers in the fourth quarter. And again, that was quite significant because it was the first earnings report to reflect any impact from its new ad supported tier, which is sort of seen as its big solution to um, reviving sub- subscriber growth. And so then closer to home, we've also had a few companies reporting this week, haven't we? So have there any been any highlights among those? Yeah, definitely. So in the UK, this story around kind of resilience in the retail sector seems to be continuing. Um, We had Primark owner Associated British Foods reporting strong Christmas trading for for the budget chain. And you can see why Primark's kind of bargain basement prices might appeal in the current climate. Um, But it was notable that like most of its peer group, while it had a very good Christmas, it was quite cautious about what's to come in 2023. on the hospitality side, understandably, that sector was making a big noise about the impact of pre-Christmas rail strikes on trading. And you did see a profit warning from Fuller's, which kind of reveals, you know, that, that it did, you know, those strikes did inflict some pain on the sector. Um, it wasn't helped or it's not helped by having lots of pubs in London. And there were contrasting fortunes for Marston's, um, which has a bit more of a community based estate and its clientele are less reliant on public transport to get to the pub. It had a very decent festive period. Um, Weatherspoon's latest trading update showed strong growth on a year-on-year basis, but that's probably not a massive surprise given last year was blighted by Omicron. I mean, its sales are still a bit behind pre-pandemic levels. And Chair Tim Martin, who's never um, that shy about voicing his opinion, warned (laughs) (laughs) of the threat posed by supermarkets and complained about the disparity in tax treatment on, on alcohol sales in the supermarkets. I mean, ultimately, I suppose Weatherspoons has to show people that there's more to a trip to one of their pubs than just cheap booze if it wants to to beat the supermarkets there. Um, And finally, Just Eat and Deliveroo please the market with signs that they might be taking financial financial discipline a bit more seriously, might might be aiming sort of highly for profit, not just growth. Um, The problem they've got, I guess, is that if households are doing the same thing and being a bit more disciplined, 
they might decide a regular takeaway as a treat they can no longer afford. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one area that lots of people will be looking to cut back on or at least cutting down on. Um, But contrary to quite a lot of the negative news out there, there's actually been some quite positive news, hasn't there, in the shape of the FTSE 100? Yeah, I mean, there's been a a really strong sort of start to the year overall, I guess, for markets, although it's that's faltered a bit perhaps in the last week or so. And the FTSE 100 was actually flirting with kind of an, an all-time high. Um, it has taken a bit of a step back since. And I guess we're now in a little bit of a holding packet, pat, pattern. I think people are waiting for a bit more direction from US earnings that are still to come because there's still some big companies still to report. And the Federal Reserve's got its first meeting um, to decide on interest rates on the 1st of February. So that that will be quite significant for markets too. And even if the markets are holding up relatively well, it's certainly the case that the UK economy isn't. Um, We've had reports of the UK being in recession. Laura, what are the latest government debt figures saying? Yeah, so we had the latest figures out this week. And essentially, they've shown that the energy support scheme that the government's put in place is taking a big chunk out of government finances. So borrowing hit record levels in December and even higher than the kind of two COVID Christmases we had. Um, And if we look at debt to GDP, it's now at its highest level since the 1960s, so at 99.5%. So clearly, the energy support scheme for both households and businesses is costing the government a lot of money. But on top of that, rising inflation obviously means that the cost of interest on government's inflation-linked bonds were much higher. They were actually double what they were last year. So that's eating another big chunk into the government's finances. We've seen lots of tax changes from the government and the tax take was actually up. So we're all paying more tax thanks to those stealth taxes from the government. Um, And the further changes that are coming in April are going to boost that. But it's not enough to counteract the huge swathe of spending that the government's doing at the moment. Um, But on the topic of recession, the OBR actually delivered another blow to the government today. So this is the Office for Budget Responsibility that does forecasts on the UK economy. It lasted one um, back in November when we had the latest kind of fiscal update and budget, whatever you wanted to call it, from the government. Um, Now the OBR is saying that it plans to reduce its estimates for growth. So it had predicted that the UK growth would fall this year, but then in the following three years it would rise. What it's now saying is that it plans to cut these figures by up to half a percent, so cut back those growth expectations. And essentially what that means is it's predicting a longer recession and a slower recovery. So we will get the next figures on the 10th of February on GDP, and that will confirm whether the UK is actually in a recession. So as I think lots of people know now, to be in an official recession, you have to have two quarters of contracting growth, and and those figures will be the final proof of whether we are. But all of this together leaves a pretty uncertain outlook for the Chancellor as he's preparing his next budget in March. Yeah, I mean, it it feels feels like people have been briefing that there won't be any tax cuts. And I guess, given all of that, that's not a surprise, is it? Exactly. And I think, um, if anything, lots of MPs are actually calling for the opposite. So for more tax hikes, despite the fact that we're all paying far more tax than we have done in recent years. Yeah. Um, As you said, the government's energy support obviously played a big part in those debt figures. But households are being given a new incentive to cut back their energy use, aren't they? 
Yeah, so this is a new scheme um, that comes from National Grid, and it's effectively paying households to use less energy at peak times. Um, there was a trial of it last year, but uh, this week we've had two instances of it actually working in action. Um, so this is where households can sign up to the scheme, and between certain periods where National Grid sees that there's going to be a peak demand for electricity, they'll offer an incentive to people to use less energy. And this is one of their ways to try and avoid these kind of rolling blackouts that we saw so many headlines about last year. It's a way of reducing the demand on the grid at these peak times, particularly they come when um, the weather is particularly cold, like we've seen in this past week. Um, But generally... These periods are in the evenings um, when lots of people get home from work, kids get home from, you know, kind of school or childcare and people put on their ovens to cook dinner. They put on their heating, they'll put on washing machines and dishwashers. Um, And how it works is that individuals are incentivized to reduce their energy usage in comparison to their kind of average usage over um, a prior period. And they're given money to cut that usage. So that might be things like not putting the dishwasher on during that time or the washing machine, deciding not to cook dinner in the oven, instead cooking something in the microwave, um, turning your heating down. So it's a lot of um, kind of different incentive methods so that they don't have to fall on this fallback option of um, rolling blackouts. And so we actually had a good stat from Octopus Energy, which is one of the companies that signed up to this scheme. um, And they released some figures on yesterday's energy saving scheme. And they reckon that its customers reduced UK energy usage by around 200 megawatt hours, which doesn't mean much to me, but they put it in context. It's the same as the city of Bristol going off grid for an hour. So it shows actually how much deferring some of this energy usage or not using it altogether can have a big impact. Absolutely. And now we've had a reader question off the back of our recent report on manager versus machine, which looked at the fact that many fund managers have failed to outperform the market. So Colin Watson emailed in to say he wanted more discussion about indices and passive investing to help those who choose to shun active management. So Tom hopefully has all the answers for us. But Tom, let's start by going back to basics. What is an index? Yeah, thanks, Laura. So a market index tracks the performance of a certain group of um, underlying investments. So that could be shares, bonds, could be other assets like commodities or even property. Um, Although with property, it tends to be property stocks as opposed to kind of actual individual properties themselves. Um, They really vary in size, these indices. So, you know, you've got really you've got well-known ones like the FTSE 100 or the S&P 500 um, in the US. And even very niche indexes like one of our research and the answer to this question, which includes businesses which target millennials as customers. Um, Now, the relevance of indices to investors has increased thanks to the emergence of products like tracker funds and in particular exchange traded funds or ETFs for short. And these products just seek to replicate the performance of the index or or most of them do. Um, So they're, they're fairly straightforward. And what are some of the more interesting indices to look at and what products are out there to kind of track them? Yeah, so in terms of indices, which might be interesting opportunities, and I should point out that these indices and the sort of ETFs are just examples. Listeners should always do their own research before they make any investment. Um, But the, the MSCI world is worth considering for pretty much anyone, I guess, given that for 
relatively limited charges, you can get exposure to more than 1500 stocks in developed markets. Um, I guess on the flip side, to sort of balance that out a bit, it's heavily weighted towards the US market, which I think most people would be aware had a, a really tough year in 2022 after you know a very strong run. Um, there's quite a few products out there that track the MCI World Index, um, including one from SPDR, so SBDR MSCI World ETF, which has ongoing charges of 0.12%. And so I guess if you compare that to, you know, traditional actively managed funds, you'd be paying more like 1% or, or kind of in that in that region. Um, another quite interesting index is the FTSE 250. So this is, for those who aren't aware, in effect, the 250 la- next largest companies after the FTSE 100 on London's main market. Um, it's a bit more diversified than the FTSE 100. It's got more of a domestic focus. So FTSE 100 often has nothing to do with the UK economy, but that's not so much the case with the FTSE 250. And perhaps more relevantly, it's performed better than its large cap counterpart over the long term. Um, there's a few reasons for that, but there, there are kind of key qualities that people see in mid-cap investments, um, namely because they're a bit smaller, just simply by being smaller, they have a bit more growth potential. Um, they're not generally as widely followed as FTSE 100 firms. So there's a bit more possibility of them surprising positively and on the flip side, negatively with earnings. Um, but whilst they've got that growth potential and the ability to sort of surprise on the upside, they're not as volatile as small caps and they're also more likely to pay dividends. Um, more widely with UK stocks, they've really underperformed pretty much since the Brexit vote. Um, and part of the driver for that has been kind of overseas investors steering clear. Um, so if you saw a switch there and suddenly these overseas investors came back, that could be a bit of a catalyst for UK stocks. Uh, although, you know, as we've already discussed in the podcast so far, the outlook for the UK economy is hardly that encouraging. So so that's something to bear in mind. And um, one of the cheaper ETFs which tracks the FTSE 250 is a Vanguard FTSE 250 ETF which has an ongoing charge of 0.1%. Um, finally, the prospects for emerging markets are being seen as a little bit brighter after what has been a very tough period for them. So part of that is down to an unwinding of the strength in the dollar. Um, when the dollar is strong, developing countries effectively have to put up their interest rates to stop their own currencies from falling, which generally isn't you know, good news for economic growth. Um, because if they don't do that, it would make it very difficult for them to service their debts, which are often priced in in dollars. Um, and longer term, you've got kind of positive drivers for emerging markets, like the fact that um, their sort of demographic setup is is um, helpful. They have you know large and growing working age populations, which is not something we have in the West, and they've got an increasingly sort of emerging middle class that's kind of spending more money. Um, they can be really volatile though, and there are political risks to continue to, but considered too, sorry. But um, one of the more inexpensive emerging market ETFs is Lixor MSCI Emerging Markets. So hopefully that's kind of helped answer the question at least to an extent. And I think also when we're talking about this kind of passive active debate, I think lots of people think that they have to sit in one or the other camp. Actually, lots of investors will use both for different reasons. They might use the kind of MSCI world that you talked about earlier, a a cheap tracker there to get broad exposure and then pick some active funds in more niche areas, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it doesn't have to be, you know, they don't have to be mutually exclusive at all. You know, it's kind of, it's just another tool, I guess, for investors. 
And so now we have our fund manager interview this week. Earlier this week, Dan Coatesworth caught up with Ron Temple from asset management firm Lazard to get his view about markets, interest rates and more. Ron Temple is chief market strategist there and he has some really interesting things to say about the current state of equities, what you should look out for over the coming days and months as companies report their earnings. So let's hear their chat. So Ron, many investors are sort of hopeful that the Federal Reserve will start to slow the pace of rate hikes or, or hopefully stop them altogether. Now, there are signs that inflation is easing and we're getting big job cuts from large employers. Do you think that's enough for the Fed to change its stance on rate rises? No, I don't think we've seen enough evidence yet for the Fed to stop raising rates. I, I do agree with your sentiment that we are seeing some encouraging signs of progress on the U.S. inflation front. And, and you know, the way the Fed talks about inflation is, is the way I agree with, is they segment inflation into four buckets. First is food and energy prices, which are quite volatile. So they tend to kind of look past those. And then there are three remaining uh, pieces we would consider to be core CPI or core consumer price in, index inflation. Those would be goods excluding food, food and energy. And then we would have shelter, which is effectively rent um, for housing, and then service ex for services excluding shelter. So all of your other services ranging from education to healthcare to airfares. Um, and when we look at those three different buckets, in the most recent three months, what we see is goods prices are actually declining. Now, that's being skewed by one particular anomaly, which is used car prices which were massively inflated during the pandemic recovery period when we had semiconductor shortages and supply chain issues and a lot of demand for cars. So we're seeing car prices, which were extraordinarily elevated, coming back down to earth. And that could go on for several more months, but that's dragging down goods prices. So check one for the Fed, that feels good. Rent or shelter inflation is the really troubling one that's quite sticky. And we're now seeing inflation there running at a rate of nine to 10% per annum and by the way, if we look at alternative high-frequency metrics, we saw that rent inflation for asking rent for new apartment leases peaked at about 16 to 17% in January of 2022. It takes about a year for that asking rent on new apartments to filter through to the broader apartment and housing universe, including renewals of existing leases. So I suspect in the first quarter of 2023, we will see rent inflation peak. The problem is it's peaking at four times the level of what we saw pre-pandemic. And even based on the most recent reading, we see 8 to 9% inflation on those new, uh, new leases, asking rent levels. So that implies you could see pretty sticky inflation in the shelter side. So, so that one is definitely not a check mark for the Fed yet. And then the third area of services excluding shelter, we have seen a deceleration of inflation there as well. So, so mixed signals, but generally leaning positive. The key for the Fed is to see that shelter inflation decelerate. The other topic, though, you brought up is the labor market. We have an extraordinarily strong labor market. Historically, if you go back before the pandemic, any single month with 200,000 new jobs was viewed as cause for celebration. Well, this year, we have yet to have any sustained period of below 200,000 jobs per month. In fact, we were running in 2022 in the first half at over 400,000 jobs per month. So what we need to see for the Fed to get comfort on the labor market front is a sharp deceleration in job growth. And the reason that matters so much is over half of the cost of goods sold in the United States is labor. 
So as long as we continue to have an incredibly tight labor market, and when I say incredibly tight, this is not hyperbole, there are 1.7 job openings for every unemployed person in the U.S. Pre-pandemic, the maximum we'd seen is 1.1 job openings per unemployed person. So we're far above any other level. And what that means is if you have a really good worker who wants a raise, they're probably going to get it. And as long as you have a labor market like that, increasing compensation feeds directly through to increased prices for services, in particular services excluding shelter. So yes, we're seeing positive signs on that metric right now, but as long as the labor market is tight, the Fed can't really sleep easy easily until they know that they've solved the labor market issue. So put all that together, we're not there yet. Bottom line, the Fed's got more work to do, and it's going to take, in my view, at least a couple more quarters before the Fed feels comfortable saying that it's at the point where it should pause for a sustained period of time, and it's certainly some distance away from cutting rates. So we've we've had um, some of the big U.S. companies start to report their earnings. We're recording this on Monday, the twenty third of January, and by the time listeners you, you're listening to this podcast, uh, you'll see a lot more companies come out with um, you know earnings expectations. But as of when we're recording this. Quite a few companies have fallen short of earnings expectations. I'm just wondering, Ron, whether you think is this the sign that you know the, the fear of recession is now being felt in the business world, and does that does the Fed take much notice of quarterly corporate earnings? Well, I, I do want to point out. I mean, as of Friday, the 20th of January, 55 companies in the S&P 500 had reported, and half of those, 27 of the 55, were in the financial sector. So let's be careful here. It's not a well-diversified statistical sample across industries. It's very finance-heavy. And I would argue the financement numbers are important because what they give us is a signal of whether there's credit stress for households and credit stress for corporates. And basically, the signals are pretty good from the banks. Now, within financials, you also have non-bank financials, so consumer finance companies that in many cases lend to lower credit score households. And and keep in mind, by the way, lower credit score doesn't mean you have some moral fault. It just means that you have a history of at least on one occasion having paid your bills after the deadline, after the due date, and that impairs your FICO or your credit score. And so what we have seen is companies that lend to lower credit scoring households are starting to see more stress. They're seeing higher delinquency rates. So again, signs that higher energy prices, higher rent inflation, higher food prices are really starting to bite into the lower income households and put them in positions where they might have trouble making their payments. So so that's been one takeaway. Um, More importantly, when I look at the week that's going to be ending on the 27th, we'll have 85 more companies report this week. And that's the broad sample across industries. And what I'm going to be watching for from the earnings are signs of decreasing demand for goods and services, signs that consumers are basically buckling down or tightening their belts. And by the way, not just consumers, but companies. Obviously, keep in mind, a lot of the revenue for the S&P 500 is selling to other companies. So we'll be watching to see signs of revenue deceleration. And we'll have to, by the way, deconstruct that revenue to recognize how much of that is inflation versus actual quantity of goods and services demand, because that's also important. The second thing we'll be watching is expense growth and what they're having to pay employees to keep their best employees on staff. And given what I talked about earlier in terms of the number of job openings per unemployed person, companies are very reluctant to cut staff right now because they're afraid they won't be able to replace them if demand remains strong. So so we're going to be watching the cost side. 
And there is a real risk here, by the way, which gets to the third thing we're watching on margins, that you could see revenue and pricing power start to deteriorate for companies. At the same time, they're still facing higher wage bills from their workers. And so that's actually a bad scenario that we're worried might well come to fruition is you could see revenue decelerate before cost inflation decelerates, and that could really squeeze margins and profitability and lead to downward revisions to expectations. And I do expect to see more of that this quarter and think we'll see more of it again next quarter with the April reporting season. So some really important things to watch in the earnings. We're early in the game, but I do think there's significant room for downside in earnings with the consensus that the S&P will deliver 2% earnings growth in 2023. Historically, when the U.S. has a recession, S&P earnings go down 10 to 15%. And I would argue recession risk has not gone away. It's likely been delayed to later in the year, depending on Fed policy. I know there's lots of people, um, as we went into the start of 2023, sort of said, yeah, we'll, we'll probably have a difficult first half of the year, but you know things will look a lot brighter in the second half. But do you think that, that that's... We, we can't think that anymore, that there's still this there's this big risk that actually it's going to be a lot tougher year than perhaps people are thinking. Well, I will confess to being guilty of having had the same view. And I think it's amazing as I look across the prognosticators on Wall Street, um, self-included, that many of us thought we had this pretty clear playbook. First half's tough, second half's better, and recession risk is highest in this quarter, Fed rates peak in that quarter. Let's be honest, I mean, no one has a crystal ball that's perfectly clear. And I think a lot of people got a little too confident in our ability to forecast the vagaries of European weather, for example, which are a big part of optimism right now, or whether Xi Jinping would do a 180 and decide that the zero COVID policy had to go. So, so, so let's have some humility here and recognize that, you know, timing can be a fool's errand in these things. And what I think is really important is to constantly zoom back out and say, okay, what is the big picture? over the next two to three years. And you know, let's not pretend we can time bottoms and tops in the market. Let's focus on broader, broader structural themes or secular themes that we need to think about. And so one of those, for example, to me is I do think inflation is decelerating now and over the next 12 months is likely to continue to do so. But I think after we get beyond this year that we're likely to see a structurally higher inflation rate over the next five years. I mean, I think the reconfiguration of global supply chains is very important as companies recognize they need to move from just-in-time supply chains to just-in-case, meaning instead of having really fragile extended supply chains, they need to have more redundancy to ensure they can deliver products to their customers. That costs more money. I also think the geopolitical friction between the U.S. and China is going to lead to more companies in China being precluded from competing for certain business in the U.S., and also many companies in China being precluded from buying products from the U.S. in the tech sector. And again, I think those could have inflationary implications, at least in the former case, on goods prices. The second big picture, though, issue other than reconfiguration of global supply chains is climate change. And there are two facets of climate change that I think are going to drive inflation higher. One is just climate change itself and the trillions of dollars we will spend on adaptation to and mitigation of climate change, that will be money spent that will not get us any new cars, houses, or services. It will hopefully protect the standard of living we already have, but at a higher cost. That to me is conceptually the definition of inflation. But the other piece of climate change that's not conceptual, that's very real and tangible, 
is climate volatility and what that's going to do to food price volatility as you have more frequent instances of droughts and floods, heat waves and freezes, that will wreak havoc on certain parts of the agricultural system, leading again to needs for more redundant supplies of food. Redundancy equals higher cost. Likewise, big implications for transportation systems. You look at, if you look at the Rhine and the Danube over the summer of 2022, and if you look at the Mississippi River in the fall of 2022 in the U.S., River levels were so low that shipping goods became difficult. Well, that means you have to ship using rails or truck liners. Those are more expensive than shipping by water. So, so we're going to have to be thinking about how climate will affect inflation. But I think there's an un, unquestionable angle that it adds to inflationary pressures alongside this reconfiguration of global supply chains. And I think that is not priced in the markets. And so, you know, I think it it's easy to get caught up in looking at each month's CPI and each month's job numbers and each month's, you know, other kind of inputs into that inflation story. But we really need to zoom out and say, are interest rates likely to be higher for longer than markets expect, which I think is the case? And how can you profit from that if the world indeed is a bit more inflationary? And I say a bit, because if you look at the U.S. for the decade into 2019, core inflation, meaning excluding energy, compounded at 1.7%. I think over the next five years, maybe that's more like a 3%, maybe even 3.5%, and I don't think markets are priced for that. So I would say move away from trying to focus on timing the next Fed move and the last Fed move and think about what the structural operating backdrop is going to be for companies and what that means for valuation of financial assets over the years ahead. Well, Ron Temple from Lazard, Chief Market Strategist, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And that's everything for this week. Do rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts as it helps other people to find us. And hit that subscribe button to make sure you never miss an episode. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.